Fall River, Massachusetts, August 4th, 1892. So, a call reached the Fall River Police Station at 11.15, but as things would happen, that day marked the annual picnic of the Fall River Police Department, and most of them were out enjoying the day at Rocky Point. The only officer dispatched to the house was Officer George W. Allen. He ran about 400 yards to the house, saw that Andrew was dead, and ran back to the station house to inform the city marshal of the events. He left no one in charge of the crime scene. While he was gone, neighbors overran the house, comforting Lizzie and peering in at the gruesome state of Andrew Borden's body. The constant traffic trampled and destroyed any clues that might have been left behind. During the 30 minutes or so that no authorities were on scene, a county medical examiner named Dolan passed by the house by chance. He looked in and was pressed into service by Dr. Bowen. Dolan examined the bodies as well, and after hearing that the family had been sick, and that the milk was sus suspected, he took, samples of, he took samples of it. Later that afternoon, he had the bodies photographed and then removed the stomachs and sent them along with the milk to the Harvard Medical School for analysis. No poison was ever found. The murder investigation that followed was chaotic. The police were reluctant to suspect Lizzie of the murder as it was against the perceived social understanding of the era that a woman such as this could have possibly committed such a heinous crime. Other solutions were advanced but were discarded even more implausible. A profusion of clues was discovered over the next few days, all of which went nowhere. A boy reported seeing a man jump over the back of the fence of the Borden property, and while a man was found matching the boy's description, he had an unbreakable alibi. A bloody hatchet was found on the Sylvia farm in South Somerset, but it proved to be covered in chicken blood. While Bridget was also seen as a suspect for a short time, the investigation finally began to center on poor Lizzie. A circumstantial case began to be developed against her with no incriminating physical evidence like bloody clothes, a real motive for the killings, or even a convincing demonstration of how and when she committed these murders. Over several weeks, though, investigators managed to compile a sequence of events that certainly cast suspicion on the spinster Lizzie Borden. Now, as the investigation begins, several incidents had occurred on Wednesday, the day before the murders, that the police believe were related to the murders. The first. In the early morning hours, Abby Borden went across the street to Dr. Bowen and told him that she and her husband had been violently ill throughout the night. She told Dr. Bowen that her and her husband had been vomiting and they were violently ill. Later, he dropped in to check on Andrew, 
who told him rather ungratefully that he was not ill and would not pay for an unsolicited house call. There was no evidence of poisoning found in the boarding autopsies. Another incident supposedly took place when it was said Lizzie tried to buy 10 cents worth of prussic acid from Eli Bentz, a clerk at Smith's drugstore. She explained to him that she wanted the poison to kill moths in a sealskin cape, but he refused to sell it to her without a prescription. Now, a customer and another clerk also identified Lizzie as being in the store that morning, but she adamantly denied it. She would later testify at the inquest that she had not attempted to purchase the poison and had not been at Smith's that day. The third incident was the arrival of John Morse in the early afternoon. He came without luggage, but intended to stay the night. Both Lizzie both he and Lizzie would later testify that they did not see each other until the next, until after the murders, the next day. Although Lizzie knew that he was there. Finally, that evening, Lizzie visited her friend, Miss Alice Russell. According to Miss Russell, Lizzie was agitated and worried over some threat to her father and, and, con and was concerned that something was about to happen. She's quoted as saying, I feel as if something was hanging over me and I cannot throw it off. She added that her father had enemies and that she was frightened that something was going to happen to her family. Now, was this an eerie foreshadowing of the future or was Lizzie laying the groundwork for an alibi? On Thursday, August 4th, the day of the murders, there were several parts of the story that did not make sense to the investigators or could not have happened the way that Lizzie expressed them. Now, Abby was killed, according to the autopsy, at around 9.30 a.m. The killer, if it was anyone but Lizzie or Bridget, would have had to conceal himself or herself in the house for well over an hour, waiting for Andrew to return. Abby could have been discovered at any moment. Now, Abby's time of death also posed another problem for investigators. According to Lizzie, she had gone out, but she hadn't. The note Lizzie claimed Abby had received asking her to visit a sick friend was never found. Lizzie later said that she might have inadvertently burned it. When Andrew Borden returned to the house, Bridget had to let him in as the screen door was fastened on the inside with three locks. This would have made it extremely difficult for a killer to get inside. Only a small window of opportunity would have existed while Bridget was fetching a pail of water from the barn. Also, Bridget later testified that while she was unlocking the door for Mr. Borden, she heard Lizzie laughing from upstairs. However, Lizzie swore she had been in the kitchen when her father came home. Borden also had to re retrieve the key to his bedroom from the shelf in the kitchen to get into his room. This was done as a precaution because of a, burglar a burglary the year before. In June 1891, a police captain inspected the house after Andrew Borden reported that it had been broken into. He found that Borden's desk had been rummaged through and over $100 along with Andrew's watch and chain, several small items, and, a, and some street 
car tickets had been taken. There was also no clue as to how anyone could have gotten into the house. Although Lizzie offered the fact that the cellar door had been opened. The neighborhood was canvassed, but no one reported seeing a stranger in the vicinity. According to the police captain, Borden said several times to him, I'm afraid of the police. I'm afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief, is quoted by Lizzie. It is unknown what he may have meant by this, but various conspiracy theorists have their ideas. On the afternoon of the murder, an officer asked Lizzie if there were any hatchets in the house, and she told Bridget to show him where they could be found. Four of them were discovered in the basement, including one with dried blood and hair on it, later determined to be from a cow. Another of the hatchets was rusted, and the other was covered with dust. One of these was without a handle and was covered in ashes. The broken handle appeared to be recent, so it was taken into evidence. A Sergeant Harrington and another officer asked Lizzie where she had been that morning, and she said that she had been in the barn looking for some iron for fish fishing sinkers. The two men examined the barn and found the loft floor to be thick with dust with no evidence that anyone had been up there. Deputy Marshal John Philippe questioned Lizzie and asked her who might have committed the murders, other than an unknown man with whom her father had gotten into an argument a few weeks before. She could think of no one. When asked directly if Uncle John Morse or Bridget could have killed her father and mother, she said that they couldn't have. Morse had left the house before 9 a.m. and Bridget had been sleeping when Andrew had been killed. Then she pointedly reminded Deputy Marshal Fleet that Abby was not her mother, but her stepmother. On the following day, Friday the 5th, the investigation continued. By now, the story had appeared in the newspapers and the entire town was in an uproar. The Fall River Herald. Shocking crime! A venerable citizen and his aged wife, hacked to pieces in their home. Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Borden lose their lives at the hands of someone unknown. Police searching actively for the fiendish murder. The community was shocked this morning to hear that an aged man and his wife had fallen victim to the thirst of a murderer and that an atrocious deed had been committed. The news spread like wildfire and hundreds poured into the second street where for years Andrew J. Borden and his wife Abby had lived in happiness. Sergeant Harrington found Eli Bence at Smith's drugstore and interviewed him about Lizzie Borden's attempt to buy poison. Emma engaged Mr. Andrew Jennings as her and Lizzie's attorney. The police continued to investigate, but nothing of any significance was ever found. Saturday was the day of the funerals for Andrew and Abby Borden. The service was conducted by the Reverends Buck and Jubb from the two congregational churches. The burial, however, did not take place at the grave site. The police informed the ministers that another autopsy needed to be conducted. This time, sadly, 
The heads of the victims were removed from the bodies. The skin removed. Plaster casts were made of the skulls for some reason. And Mr. Borden's head was not returned to his coffin. On Sunday morning, Alice Russell observed Lizzie burning a dress in the kitchen stove. And she's quoted as saying, If I were you, I wouldn't let anybody see that. Excuse me. If I were you, I wouldn't let anybody see me do that, Lizzie, Alice said. It's a dress stained with paint, and it's of no use anymore, Lizzie replied. At around 5 p.m. that afternoon, Lizzie's Uncle John Morse walked to a drugstore to make a purchase. He greeted the mayor on the street. How is your family getting on in the light of such a tragedy? The mayor politely asked. Ms. Lizzie was much better today than she has been. Thank you for asking, Morse replied. Under the circumstances, she's as well as could be expected. We are all hopeful that the murder will be discovered and are anxious to assist in the work. Yes, I'm sure you are, said the mayor. I'm afraid all of us at the house are at a disadvantage, though, as we cannot offer any knowledge to guide the detectives or even surmise a theory as to the identity of the killer, said Morse. I understand you, that is. The family have retained the services of a Pinkerton man, said the mayor. Yes, it's true, said Morse. Rumor has it there have been some insinuating aspirations cast on the family for employing Mr. Hanscom, Mr. Hanscom, a private investigator. Some people think we harbor insincere motives. As to that, no one in the town is more deeply concerned in the case than the daughters, and they offered the $5,000 reward in hope it might be productive of results. With only the desire to apprehend the murder governing their actions by advice of counsel, the daughters took a proper and consistent course in employing a competitive detective, a competitive, a competent detective, to prosecute the investigation. We wanted to employ the best talent and we advised to engage the Pinkertons, a most reputable firm. Now, it was becoming evident that public opinion was beginning to waver in the conclusion that it was some outsider who had committed the murders that everyone so firmly believed since Thursday night the friends of Lizzie Borden had at first rallied promptly to support her, but as time went by, they found their theories severely shaken by some of the printed stories in the newspapers of her coldness, her lack of emotion, a nature quite devoid of feeling, which suggested Lizzie Borden could have slaughtered right and left without a fluttering of conscience. It is understood that members of the Borden family distantly related to, distantly related to that of Andrew J. Borden have prepared themselves for a united action in whatever direction may seem necessary. Nothing like a pact had been made 
but the matter had been discussed from a family standpoint and its wealthy members volunteer to do whatever they believe necessary in the interests of justice. Detective Hanscom's services were secured at their suggestion, and while his work is independent of the local police, it is directed to the same end, to discover the missing murderer. So general became the popular demand for an arrest, and so unanimously did public sentiment point to one person as the perpetrator of the double murder, that the family became alarmed and lost no time in exerting itself to such measures that would secure at least a stay in the proceedings until there was no reasonable doubt as to guilt of the person suspected. It was for this purpose that the Borden's family lawyer, Andrew Jennings, had become active in the case. By Monday afternoon and into the evening, the Central Police Station was the center of activity in the Borden case. Rumors of an arrest were thick in the air, and there were hustling and bustling that indicated that someone was going to be done soon. Something was going to be done soon. Officers hurried about with an anxious look on their faces. Everyone was quite active, and it was expected that something sensational might occur at any moment. But the moments dragged along into hours, and nothing happened. The stage was set, but none of the principal characters had yet arrived on the stage. It was decided that City Marshal Hilliard and his allies had reached the point where they needed legal advice. Therefore, the Marshal sent for Hosea M. Knowlton, the district attorney. It was quiet on 2nd Street. There was certainly plenty going on at the Central Station. Orders had been issued by Marshal Hilliard that every officer who had any evidence to put forth should make a report and submit it in writing for further examination. By the head of the department, and to be submitted to the district attorney. When all the special work had been written up by Marshall, written up, the Marshall had a stack of paper a yard high. These he thrust into a big box and waited to hear from district attorney Knowlton. Knowlton had gone out to the Mellon home to have dinner. When he received word that the marshal and medical examiner wanted to meet with him at the hotel, he left the Mellon home for the meeting. At 5 p.m., taking the big box under his arm, Marshal Hilliard left his office with Detective Seaver close to his heels. They walked rapidly to the hotel where they waited for District Attorney Knowlton. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Knowlton arrived with the mayor ready to begin the business. The four of them went up to a private room on the second floor. They took off their coats and settled to the task in hand without any preliminary delay. Marshal Hilliard presented Knowlton the box, which contained the written results of four days' work by the Fall River Police Department in their hunt for the key to the most intricate riddle of crime that had ever been perpetrated in the state. The most important papers were selected from the bundle, and the three men discussed the case from beginning to end. There was a stumbling block 
that puzzled the district attorney and his assistants. On the day of the murder, Miss Lizzie had explained that she went to the loft of the barn for the lead. And an officer who was examining the premises also went to the loft. It was covered with dust, and there were no tracks to prove that any person had been there for weeks. He took particular notice of the fact and reported back that he had walked about on the dust-covered floor on purpose to discover whether or not his own feet had left any tracks. Hmm. He said that they did and thought it impossible that anyone could have visited the floor a short time before him and make no impression on the dust. The lower floor of the stable was quite different, as it was evident that it had been used more frequently and the dust had not accumul accumulated there. The conclusion reached was that in all the excitement of the awful discovery, Miss Borden had forgotten just where she wa went for the lead. When she found her father lying on the lounge, she ran to the stairs and ascended three or four steps to call Maggie. Maggie is the name by which Bridget Sullivan was called by the members of the family. She did not call for her stepmother because she had stated afterward she did not think she was in. Then came the business of the mysterious letter. Miss Lizzie had said that on the morning of the tragedy, her stepmother received a letter asking her to visit a sick friend. She knew that, about, uh, that at about 9 o'clock, the stepmother went upstairs to put shams on the pillows, and she did not see her again. It was that letter that led her to believe that her stepmother had gone out. Here was the stumbling block number two. The officers had searched all over the house for that letter. The marshal said but had failed to find any trace of it. Miss Lizzie had feared that it had been burned in the kitchen stove. The Marshall Medical Examiner and the Mayor carefully rehearsed step-by-step step the, summon, the summoning of Dr. Bowen, who was not at home when the murder was committed, and his ghastly discovery on the second floor. No theory other than Mrs. Borden was murdered first, was entertained. Mayor Coughlin was positive that the murderer had closed the door after the dead had been, after the deed had been accomplished. Lizzie Borden's demeanor during the many interviews which police had with her was de described at length and the story of John Moore's whereabouts was retooled. As the night wore on, and it became clear that nothing would be done that night. There was no reason for doing anything that hour. The person to whom the only suspicion of any account was pointed was already under house arrest. If there had been no reason that person should have been arrested in the daytime, it was certain that no discoveries would be made that would compel the police to act before daylight came around again. When the marshal and Detective Siebert left, left the district, at, left the district attorney, they returned to the central station. On their return, they had another bundle of papers said to have been warrants 
but on that point, nobody was positive as the marshal refused to state what their meeting had been about. Each of the men referred inquirers to District Attorney Knowlton, who said that he was not ready to make any statement at that time. At 1 a.m., Marshall and the mayor were in the central station discussing the situation. They were ready to make an arrest. The warrants had been written out in all detail, and all that was wanting were the final signatures to make them valid. Immediately upon adjournment of the district court the next morning, Judge Blaisdell retired to his office on Bedford Street, only to be summoned a few minutes later back to the court building. As Judge Blaisdell was hurrying along to the courthouse, a Herald newspaper reporter saw him and started in pursuit of the judge. Excuse me, your honor, the reporter said, catching up with the judge. Can you tell me if if an inquest or anything concerning the boarding mortars will be taking place today? In answer to the reporter's question, the judge replied, I cannot confirm anything at this time. Have any warrants been issued? The reporter asked. As soon as I am able, I will be happy to confer with you on the matter, but I must decline comment for now, replied the judge. Meanwhile, District Attorney Knowlton, Medical Examiner Dolan, and Detective Seaver had arrived and were in consultation with Marshal Hilliard. Officers started from the courthouse in all directions, and it was soon apparent that something of importance was about to take place. The members of the party who had been in consultation with, in the marshal's office went upstairs where the first legal proceedings in the case were about to begin. Mrs. White, the stenographer, took notes for Mr. Knowlton. Nobody outside of the officials was allowed in this room, and it was impossible to obtain any information as to what was taking place inside. Bridget Sullivan, the domestic, was the first to arrive at the station. She was escorted from the boarding house by Officer Doherty. Mrs. Sullivan was dressed in black and her behavior indicated that she thoroughly realized the position in which she was placed. If an honest appearing face was to acquit a person of a crime, it was said Mrs. Sullivan certainly had that face. From the time Mrs. Sullivan went upstairs at 9.45 a.m. until 11.20 a.m., nothing indicated that an inquest was being held to those outside the building. An officer was placed at the head of the stairs and was to allow no one to approach within hearing distance of the room. At 12.15 p.m., a recess was taken until 2 p.m. The witness being placed in charge of Matron Russell. District Attorney Knowlton would not say a word to anyone outside the room about what was going on. Next to be questioned was Sheriff Kirby of Westport. He was interviewed regarding, regarding the investigations being made in his town, surrounding some well-known shady characters and perhaps trying to connect them some way to the crimes. 
I know that my officers have been working on it, he said, but so far, as I know, we have not made any progress toward the solution of the mystery. They first started to follow up with Lincoln and Cooper, two Western dealers who are here at present, but they soon gave up that scent. I can say this much, not the slightest suspicion attaches anyone to any member of the Borden family so far as any dealings in Westport are concerned, said Sheriff Kirby. A remark that is going around is that if the parties at present suspected were poor people, they would have been locked up long before now. Sheriff Kirby added, of course, we in the Sheriff's Department in Westport have denied that in, in the case we tried to assure fol folks that as soon as a piece of evidence that is strong enough to warrant the arrest of any person is found, that party, no matter who it may be, will be placed under arrest. I know that Marshal Hilliard has been sifting the evidence in a cool and careful manner, examining every possible theory and clue, clue that would lead to the solution of the mystery. Sheriff Kirby said, In the work, he has acted impartially and from the first determined to show partiality to none, I am sure. At 1.45 p.m., Marshal Hilliard and Officer Harrington left as the courthouse in the carriage taxi. As they drove up 2nd Street, they attracted the attention of pedestrians, and in no time at all, fully 500 people had assembled on the opposite side of the street, facing the Borden Mansion. Mrs. George Brigham, a friend of the Borden sisters, was seen leaving the Borden house and going across to Dr. Bowen's house. The general assumption of the crowd was that Lizzie was about to be arrested by the officers and had broken down under the strain. Such was not the case. However, when Lizzie came to take her place in the carriage, the crowd could see that her the crowd could see that her step was light, and other than a case worn, a careworn expression, nothing indicated the terrible mental strain that she was undergoing. Some did think that in the past few days Lizzie had aged, though. The full round cheeks that friends of her former days remember had entirely disappeared, although the bright eyes and haughty expression were still retained. There was not a falter in her step, and she came down the stairs, and from her every movement, and from her every movement, the woman would be the last person to suspect of the crime. Her step was such as would indicate that she was going to a picnic instead of attending an inquest. All along the road, crowds of people had gathered, and when the carriage arrived back at the station, there was a mad rush for the alley. The four passengers exited the taxi and passed into the station, going at once to the courtroom above. After they had passed up the stairs, Officer Barker took his place on the landing and forbade anybody passing the stairs beyond the clerk's office. In the courtroom where Judge Hilliard, Marshal Hilliard, Wait, I'm sorry. Judge Blaisdell, Marshal Hilliard, Dr. Dolan, Detective Seaver, and District Attorney. 
Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings, was at the marshal's office, but was not present at the inquest. Lizzie was questioned closely as to her doings and those of the rest of the family. The following pages contain the complete transcript of the inquest of Lizzie Borden.